certain things that, you, that you're told by people that you trust and you believe it. At some point, you, you have to outsource your thinking to people you trust. But you should apply your critical thinking as to whether they are people you should trust. Welcome to the Balancing Act Podcast. I'm Andy Tempty. Today, we've got Mr. Andrew Rosen joining us, also known as Andy. Uh, we worked together at, uh, at Kaplan for many years, and when we had more than, uh, there, were, there were more of us that had the name Andy in the room, and it was a lot of fun having multiple Andys in the room. Anyway, Andy's my former boss and is the chairman and chief executive officer of the global education giant, Kaplan Incorporated. Thank you so much for being here, Andy. Andy, great to be here. Um, it's always fun to be with you. In fact, look, I, I, you know, I've been a Kaplan for a long time. One of the key reasons I'm there is because I, I got to work with people like you, smart, passionate, focused. I mean, it's uh, that's one of the real pleasures of my life is to spend time with the team that we have at Kaplan, and you were, you know, one of the key leaders of that team. Yeah, it it is a it is an extraordinary place with. Just, you know, a lot of businesses are like this. A lot of businesses have that built-in uh, purpose. Uh, you know, we had it in spades at, at Kaplan, you know, helping individuals achieve their educational and career goals, one success story at a time. That's how that's how you know how long I I, I work there. The You know, it just rolls right off the tongue. Uh, but a lot of businesses... You know, when you dig underneath, they do have that and have the, those those extraordinary people. But I agree, we were just so fortunate, so yeah. fortunate to have I mean, that built you in. Know, what, you, what you're dealing with at Kaplan is an aspirational group of customers. By by definition, every single person you're dealing with is trying to get to the next level. They're trying to get get into a better school. You know, uh, succeed on the on uh, uh, on, a, on a licensure exam, get a get a degree. Like that's a really uh, appealing population to serve, and it's part of what attracts such great people to help work with 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 all of us. Yeah, that's that's right. Uh, so today we're gathered together uh, in our fifth episode in our mini series entitled "Nobody Wants to Think Anymore," which is an exploration of the often misunderstood skill. Of, uh, of critical thinking. Uh, I wanted to do this series after hearing on multiple occasions, just kind of out in the wild, people grousing about nobody wants to work anymore, and then extending that into uh, nobody wants to, uh, to think anymore to really peel apart uh, this, uh, this higher order skill of critical thinking. But before we get started, as always, uh, I want to ask you what, you know, tell our listeners your story. Give us some insight into Andy Rosen. Well, I guess, uh, you know, depending on where I want to start the, start the story, um, I was a lawyer for uh, first the Washington Post newspaper and then for Newsweek. And I thought they were, those were great jobs for, you know, for a lawyer. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the organizations that I, I was part of. Um, but I started to feel that, um, A, I was working in a zero-sum game. That is, a lot of lawyering is about pulling, trying to pull value onto your side of the table as opposed to the other guy's uh, you know, part of the table. And, uh, and I really wanted to uh, 
build, you know, grow the pie instead of just allocating the pie. And, and the other thing was, I was always working uh, in support of somebody else. That is, if, if I were reviewing an article for you know, publication to be sure it didn't have any problems, I'm working on somebody else's article. If I'm working on a deal, I'm working on somebody else's deal. And I felt over time that I, I, should, I think I'm capable of, of uh, being the primary, of creating, you know, creating value myself. So I started to want to move away from just working on behalf of others or allocating you know, the size of the pie and towards uh, building and growing things. And uh, so I started looking around at other opportunities and I came across a guy that, Andy, you know well, Jonathan Grayer, who was at, um, at Newsweek at the time. And he was uh, considering moving over to, to Kaplan. He had been asked to move over to, to, to Kaplan, which at the time was a, a money losing, uh, shrinking, low quality test prep uh, firm. And uh, he had been asked to, to come over and sort of help rebuild that. And as he and I were talking about whether he should go, he said, well, look, if I go, you, you got to come with me. And I thought, eh, you know, maybe it would be interesting. It was clearly an un- undermanaged um, uh, business. And so anyway, Jonathan persuaded me to come aboard and he was my uh, you know friend and mentor throughout, uh, you know, the first, I don't know, 20 years or so of my, of my time. At, well, not quite that, 17 years of my time at Kaplan. Um, he became the CEO. I, I became uh, the president. But I came to Kaplan running a test prep center um, and then ran a region and then ran the field operations and ultimately became, you know, chief operating officer and, and uh, president as Kaplan grew beyond test prep into the professional business that you you ran, Andy, our international business and so on. So I guess that's the, the heart of the story. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit later about Kaplan, but it, a lot of people still have it in their uh, minds that Kaplan is an SAT uh, or a GMAT prep business. And just the sheer global scale of of the business is quite extraordinary from uh, those uh, those roots that uh, that you just described when when you and Jonathan took over. Uh, back in the in in the very early 1990s, I, I always loved uh, hearing you and Jonathan when after I joined in 1999 talk about the stories of if we just had more computers, everything would would be would would be fine. If we just added a few more desktop computers, everything would would be great. And uh, and and you know how how that uh, technology trap was. Uh, uh, and, and we and you know you clearly broke out of the technology trap now into this uh, into this global into this global business. Yeah, there's um, a lot of, lot of uh, you know you, you you always want to try the easy solutions first, and uh, it's only when they don't work that you got to think more holistically about what the, uh, the issues are. Right, right. So uh, but back to your story. Um, if you had to pick one thing that just put rocket boosters under your career, uh, that key tipping point, that accelerant for your career, what would that be, have been? Well, yeah, I feel like I've had, there, there are a lot of things I could choose, but I probably would go back to that relationship with Jonathan because, you know, I think um, coming over to Kaplan and he was a, he was a great mentor to me. Um, uh, you know, I, I would have moved into business somewhere else, but I, I ended up coming into a company that had um, 
that was, as I said, undermanaged. It had great opportunity. It had a much more resilient brand than I expected. And it had the kind of um, mission that we've already talked about. And that was really uh, a blessing to, to come into, into that world. And, and I would say that um, Jonathan, who was a very ambitious, fast-moving, very, very uh, brilliant guy, was a, a, an excellent person. I learned a lot because you know, I had been a lawyer. Um, Jonathan was, you know, MBA and, and so on. And I, th I think that we, we uh, blended well together and I learned a lot from him. Yeah, it's that, um, you know, finding those people that where your skill sets augment one another uh, and, you know, opposites attract for a reason. And I, I, I enjoy it. I like that about, uh, about the, you know, the Jonathan and Andy story and how you guys uh, work together uh, yeah. and, along and with the rest of that team. It wasn't just a Jonathan and Andy story. It was John Polstein, whom you, I know you yep. had on the show, Melissa Mack, Robert Greenberg. I mean, there's a whole group of people who, you know, together uh, sort of took on their shoulders the, the task of dragging capital out of the hole it was in and putting it, you know, bringing it forward into the much bigger and broader company than it is now. Yeah, yeah. So we're here to talk about critical thinking. Um, and, uh, you know, what? let our listeners know what critical thinking means to you. Well, I mean, I, th I, I view it as really sort of analyzing and synthesizing, you know, available facts, data, uh, evidence, counter evidence, uh, you know, observations, arguments uh, to form a judgment. So, uh, and that is pulling together information that is relevant to a judgment instead of just making a judgment, which is what happened. You know, you're, the, the, the title of your segment refers to that. And it's not just that people make judgments without thinking. They make judgments based on, um, they outsource their thinking right. to somebody else. They say, you know what, if I, I read something on Facebook uh, you know, I, I know lots of people who get outraged when they see a headline on Facebook and they don't even take the time to say, is this, uh, is this real? Like, is it, is it, like, is it from a legitimate source? Is, is there anything that I, that I should believe in this? But they allow themselves to get upset by something that they just, you know, they hear without uh, digging deeper into it. And of course, you know, I'm sure we don't want to get into a, you know, a, a political discussion, but um, you know, throughout our politics right now, people are expected to follow whatever, you know, if you, if you like Obama, then anything Obama says is, is right. And anything, if you hate, don't like him, whatever he says is wrong. And then when it, when Trump becomes president, the reverse is true. The same people did without going to the underlying merits of the arguments. And that I think has frustrated, uh, uh, you know, it's frustrated pretty much everybody, and it's it's kind of undermined our politics because people are not doing their their own work to understand what it is that they want and saying, "I want to support uh, uh, outcomes and not just the people who we think tend to agree with us." Yeah, I, well, that 
Yes. The answer to your question, yes, we're not going to talk about politics today, but we kind of are because uh, that phrase that you used, uh, outsourcing our, our thinking, I think that's uh, going to be one of the many real quotable moments that come out of uh, out of this discussion. And yeah, this, you know, giving one's opinion uh, to someone else uh, w without really thinking deeply about it. I make no qualms about wanting to bring the world back closer to center uh, in in my uh, in my YouTube uh video message from last weekend, you know, I call myself a pale blue dotter. You know, we're, we're on this planet all together. Uh, we've got one spaceship. Why, why are we ripping e each other apart with this uh, hyper-partisanship? And critical thinking just seems to be lost uh, in, in the equation. Yeah. But, you know, uh, outsourcing your thinking, it, like, it makes sense for, some, you know, you know, if you think about the, you know, human beings, like each person doesn't have to, didn't have to decide for themselves that a given berry was poisonous right? or to avoid the lions, you know, like there are certain things that, you, that you're told by people that you trust and you believe it. And, um, you know, so over time, it would be impossible for all of us to make, to do all the thinking on every issue. Yeah. I mean, we, Nowadays, the, you know, the, the questions are, you know, surround like vaccines and things like that. Like at some point you, you have to outsource your thinking to people you trust, but you should apply your critical thinking as to whether they are people you should trust. Right. You know, and they will, you'll be right sometimes, you'll be wrong sometimes, but we can't, we can't uh, validate for ourselves the evidence behind everything surrounding us or we'd be completely paralyzed. The, it's it's inherent in in who we are as humans that we have to trust some things to be true, but but sometimes it feels like we're going a little too far towards uh, trust and believing, and uh, and we got to do our own work. It's a balancing act, is it? Not? A, yeah, maybe that would be the way to say it. <laughs> it's a balancing. I think you got it. <laughs> I, 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 you know, it's it's just such an easy softball plug for for my book, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know, the fact is, much of life is a balancing act, and your book, which, but you know, as an aside, is a, a wonderful book. If people in the, in the audience haven't read it, uh, I truly encourage it. I've, I learned a lot. I um, I feel like I became a better manager, better person from from reading it. Uh, but that that notion of balancing act pervades our life. Yeah, that's my cue for an aw shucks moment. <laughs> so uh, let, let's uh, let's move on a little bit here. Can you tell us a story or two uh, about a time in your career when critical <laughs> thinking was just absolutely essential to a, to a success, or uh, better told, the the avoidance of a failure? Well, of course, you like to think that. Uh... Um, a lot of your, you know, hopefully most of your decisions are based on critical thinking. So hopefully that's, you know, I, I, I don't have to dig too deep to find a decision that was based on critical thinking. But um, uh, one good example, I would say, is um, for years I gave a, you know, I would give talks uh, in various forums. Uh, talk about how the combination of, of uh, demographics and uh the, the use of technology to enable consolidation 
would lead, you know, maybe as many as half of American higher education institutions to become non-viable over the next 20 years. That, you know, that a lot of institutions, like there are going to be some institutions that are going to get bigger and there's some that just are not going to be able to attract students and they're going to go away. Um, and, you know, when I gave that talk, I'd usually say like, there's about 150 institutions around the country that you could pretty much put in the survivor category. They would have to have cataclysmic um, failures to, to not make it in. But but who among the other 850 institutions, you know, among the 4,000 institutions that exist would make it into um, you know, the, the remaining, you know, 85% there is uh, to be determined. As I was giving those talks, you know, we had this institution, Kaplan University. And there were a bunch of reasons to think that Kaplan University should be a, should be a survivor. Had great outcomes, you know, graduation rates double the rest of American higher education for the kinds of students it serves. The students were getting jobs at very high rates, uh, making more money. Uh, they were very happy about the experience. All those things would suggest here's a here's an institution that should be a survivor. But you know, thinking you know, you applying a critical thinking uh, approach, it was a relatively new institution founded in you know two thousand, uh, for profit institution at a time when you know people are inherently skeptical of for profits, a high performing for profit. You know, we uh, we used to say it was a a beautiful house in a lousy neighborhood, you know, but people still made judgments about it. Forced us to think, what, what should we do about this um, uh, set of capabilities and this, this institution? And it led us uh, to, to think that it would be better off as part of a more established uh, institution. And that's what led to our sale of Kaplan University to Purdue University. Um, by the way, Purdue at the time as Mitch Daniels has described, uh, was going through its own exercise of saying, hey, we want to serve the, the adult population. We want to be stronger online, but we don't really have the capabilities in-house to do that. And so when we started talking with Purdue. It was sort of a hand-in-glove solution. Not an easy one for us because we had to give up, uh, you know, we, 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 we sold the institution. We gave up control uh, of something we loved. It was, our, you know, our baby. But uh, it was it was the analytic process to not just keep on doing the same thing we've been doing and assume that all will work out, but to say, you know what, maybe we have to do something very hard for us um, to do what's right for the students, the alumni, uh, and the, the employees and society. Uh, so that's what we did, and I think that it was that was very much a critical thinking exercise of going through all of the data and and evidence, and you know arguments and projections that, uh, you know, what would be the best home for what was then Kaplan University and is now Purdue Global. Yeah, I, I'm glad you told that story uh, because that is the perfect example of where, uh, you know, from a critical thinking perspective, you have a very difficult uh problem or challenge to solve and you just kind of have to step back as a as your own third party looking at the issue from lots of different angles uh, and yeah Kaplan University was homegrown uh, mm -hmm. within the organization lots of uh, personal passion based attachments and it could have in in many other business environments it, it uh, with with 
decision makers, maybe with uh, weaker egos or less critical thinking uh, skills, uh, might have taken that in a different direction and it would have had a very different uh, ending. So a lot of people listening to this, uh, you know, they aspire to be in your chair one day, not your specific chair, but the, but the chair of the chief executive uh, officer of a business. Uh, you know, how, speaking to those individuals, how do you apply critical thinking in your day-to-day, uh, what I like to call leader standard work, uh, or said differently, what does critical thinking look like in action at the senior executive level? Well, um, let me put aside the leader standard for a second and just talk about culture. Um, we have, a, you know, we, we sometimes describe the culture at Kaplan that, that nobody will ever stab you in the back at Kaplan, but that doesn't mean they won't go, to, go after you. And the concept there is not that we're, uh, that you want people to be passive with one another, but they should do it directly. You know, if, if you've got an argument with somebody, raise it with them. Uh, don't, don't walk away because they might be offended or whatever. Like you sh- we should have it on. There should be a rough and tumble. Uh, but it should be done respectfully and, should, and it should be done directly. So, um, you know, sometimes when people come to me and say, boy, that was a dumb argument, dumb point that so-and-so made uh, in that meeting, you know, I will always say first, well, what did, what did so-and-so say when you told them that? And if they say, well, I didn't tell them that, then I, I'm like, I, I don't want to hear, I want you to, you know, if you disagree with somebody, don't go around their back. Don't tell me, tell them. Um, and by the way, this is a, you know, at Kaplan, this is very much, you know, throughout the organization, I would say, uh, if Andy, when we work together, if there are times when I'm raising questions with you, there are at least as many times when you're raising questions with me about how, you know, have priorities for the company, how things ought to work, how things ought to be organized, because, uh, you know, you, I have to assume felt empowered to, to push that agenda. It's, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes I would agree with you. Sometimes I would disagree with you. Sometimes I would disagree with you. And then, uh, much later, sometimes years later, agree with you. Um, but that's, but what you want is to, uh, encourage an environment in which that, you know, people are pushing each other and not just saying, well, this is the way, you know, this is the way it goes. That's the way we do things. Um, you know, when you talk about, as, as I understand sort of leader standard work, you know, we do have a, a series of sort of a cadence of meetings and reviews and things like that that are regular. So obviously we have financial reviews on a, on a you know, depending on the unit on a, on a either monthly or quarterly basis. And then, um, you know, obviously budgets and, and so on. And in those meetings, like in the regular day-to-day conversations, things sometimes can be just fine. You know, yeah, we're doing okay. Fell a little short here, but, but when you get to those, let's say quarterly reviews, you get to, you dig into whether things are really fine. You can go, you go step by step and, and understand every lever uh, within the business and, and doing so, if you don't have a standardized cadence of that, you can miss things. And by the way, we do that um, for financial reviews at Capital. We also do it for, we do learning reviews. So, and this is actually quite unusual in the education world, but uh, twice a year, we will go through in depth what uh, what the learning you know, achievements are. Like that is, 
like we've already established what is it that students want out of our program and how are they doing and getting that and what is our strategy for continuously improving that. And so we'll start the meetings talking about, well, here's what you said you're going to do. How have you accomplished? Uh, how far have you gone on that? Have you re reached your goals and how do we extend that? And so you can do it. It's not, these are not just financial uh, metrics that you can build things around. Whatever your company is focused on and what your customers focused on, make sure that you're achieving those goals as well. Because in the long run, you know, your company is not going to be successful unless your unless your customers are successful. Yeah. And what you know, walking into those sessions with a open mind and being able to look at things from multiple directions instead of, well, we've always done it this way. And yeah, that that's yeah. But the result, you know, and the results, um, you know, I wouldn't say they speak for themselves, but they are what they are. And you, and if they're not what you want them to be, then there's something that you need to do in order to, to put them in that role. One of the other things I wish to just add is that um, I've been in lots of meetings where th there's lots of questioning, but it is in a gotcha environment. Like, ah, you missed this. Well, that doesn't lead to trust. That doesn't lead to a feeling of uh, openness. If if the purpose, like, you know, if if you and I, if you're running a unit and I'm, I'm uh, you know, overseeing, we're aligned. There's nothing, if if you have a problem, I have a problem. So let's figure it out together. Right. You know, and and the question should be designed not to show, oh, I'm smarter than this guy, you know, you know, or she made this mistake. It's how do we how do we solve the underlying issues of the business? How do we make sure that we're, uh, you know, that we're making progress? And that culture has to be, you know, I think for critical thinking to, to permeate the organization, there has to be the trust that the, the reason that, that, that you're asking questions is to improve the business and help everyone. Yeah. That internal competition, uh, uh, that uh, it can be very unhelpful, especially when when it's uh, framed in that got you uh, type of an environment. The emotional waste. There's just so much waste that is uh, that's generated by that. So, uh, you know, for our listeners, uh, thank you, thank you for going there, and thank you for making that clarification. I, I want to switch gears just a little bit here. Uh, you've got a lot of experience in uh, in higher education. Uh, I trace our challenges with critical thinking back uh, into our uh, K twelve systems and uh, the preparedness that uh, of, of students that we're sending into our, our institutions of of higher learning of of various uh, varieties. Uh, what advice do you have for uh, educators and business leaders as an extension to move the needle on what, for lack of better terminology, we'll call critical thinking literacy? Yeah. I, well, let me add another constituency there, which is parents. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, there, there's research that says that, that you know, uh, infants have, you know, are, are able to, to think critically, you know, I mean, and as I mean, really, it's very impressive how uh, very, very young children can figure out what, where something doesn't make sense. And they start, they use whatever means they have to try to figure out what, what went wrong. I mean, I mean uh, you know, peekaboo is a version of, of that. Wait, this is not the way it's supposed to be. So uh, what you want to do is encourage right from, you know, from the beginning, encourage, you know, children to ask questions and to. Uh, understand what's behind 
what they what they're seeing. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, you know, I, I would say as a parent, it's hard to say you can never do this, but but the because I said so um, argument. I mean, we've all done it, right? I mean, we, yeah. it, it's very hard when your kid asks for the tenth time. You know, not to, I don't want to go to sleep now. I want to be for ten minutes. You got to go to bed. Why? It's it's you know every time when you're exhausted and the kid is exhausted to say, well, you know, the importance of sleep to health, or you know, you're going to be tired for preschool in the morning, or mommy and daddy want to watch a movie, whatever the answer. Sometimes it is because I said so, but but every time you do it, you should understand that what you're saying to a ch- to your child is that they should blindly follow a rule without wondering what's what's behind it. And what you want to do as a parent, as a teacher, as a business leader, is constantly uh, uh, ensure that your people are understanding both uh, the rule and the reason for the rule, and and encourage them to ask questions about those about those rules. And questions, by the way, um, are not just about like the what, but also about motivation. You know, and this is where. Um, you know, when somebody says we ought to do it this way, you should always just at least understand that, you know, like sometimes people uh, uh, encourage something that is in both their interest and the organization's interest. It happens all the time. But sometimes they encourage things that are in their interest and not in the organization's interest. And it is useful to know what is in their interest. So what, what kind of motivations an individual might have for making an argument? Not because it means that they're wrong, but but just because it might lead you to say, I want to make a couple of additional inquiries. So, I mean, I guess I think that um, whatever role we're in have to, can be, uh, can play a role in encouraging, uh, you know, more questions. And by the way, you mentioned, you know, the education industry. Um, I feel like the education industry is ironically, because they're supposed to be teaching us about things like critical thinking uh, as, as a, you know, as a, an industry is guilty of very little critical thinking or surprisingly little critical thinking. Um, I kind of feel like in the, you know, I don't know, I don't know when it was, I, I've always wanted to re- research this, but in the, I don't know, 30s or 40s or 50s, you know, 1900s, um, uh, higher education decided that, that it was, its model was perfect. Yep. You know, that this, a, a great professor in front of a room with, you know, with students and, you know, over a 13-week period, and like, it was just the, the height of learning. It could never be better. And the, one of the problems with that is that it means that anything different is necessarily worse. And so it is possible within education to attack anything, any innovation um, as worse because it's not, it's not, it's different from what has been defined as perfection. And so the result of that is that education moves much more slowly than the rest of the economy. Um, and we're still stuck with, uh, with models that really don't, uh, don't work as much anymore. And, you know, I, I think that uh, um, what we're starting to see in higher education is that institutions that have challenged the model are starting to see, are, are starting finally to get some traction. Arizona State would be a good example of an institution that said, you know what? Our job is to further the economy of of, uh, of the state of Arizona, uh, to serve 
people regardless of their backgrounds and you know make make the, the university look like the state and so on. And they've been one of the best performing institutions in, in the uh, in the country. I would say Purdue falls in that same category. It was that openness, that critical thinking that made them uh, open to the, the purchase of Kaplan University. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Um, education does uh, unfortunately move very very slowly. I'm still having conversations uh, with ed- with educators about new models uh, for uh, entry into the world of work, and the degree is, is the only recommended path in those educators' uh, uh, opinions. There just is very little willingness to look at alternatives that uh, that provide more access and uh, and and a faster path uh, into earning uh, and and blending earning and learning together so uh, you know thank you for leading thank you for leading us there um, so you're a lawyer turned executive it's a very interesting part of of your background uh, and you know, we'll have some young lawyers, uh, early career lawyers listening to this, uh, looking to transition into the business world. Uh, what are the key skills that lawyers develop during their training that are beneficial to that transition? And uh, what are some that are detrimental? Well, uh, the legal education process is very much a critical thinking um, focused process. So the, the Socratic method, if, you know, even non-lawyers are, are familiar with from, you know, movies and things like that, where, you know, a professor stands in front of a class and starts to, you know, put out hypotheticals and gradually say, well, what happens if, you know, what if this were the case? What if, you know, uh, what if the car was going 50 miles an hour? What if the car was, you know, and, um, and just change it and force, it forces people to say, what is, what underlies my assumption about what should be done here? Like that, that process really trains people to think critically. In fact, anybody in your audience who's ever lived with a law student knows that they're insufferable because they start to question everything. You know, they it, it is exactly the critical thinking process, and it's and it's kind of critical thinking uh, uh, run amok because you start to you know challenge why should peanut butter go with you know with jelly? It's it everything is is up for debate, and so. Uh, Overall, I mean, you know, lawyers have they have to reel themselves back, and most of them do at some point from that. But it it is it it may be, you know, uh, other than I suppose schools of logic, you know, law schools may be the most, uh, you know, sharp trainers in critical thinking in in our society. And that's all uh, that for that reason, I think a law school can be a very good uh, preparation for for business. Having said that, um, on a sort of a relative basis, I would say that lawyers um, are trained to protect and business people are trained to grow and build. And, um, you know, you want to get a blend of that. Like both are very important. But if you're a lawyer and you bring your your purely protective sort of uh, modality to the business world, you may end up slowing things down. And so there's some people who are um, who are built to, you know, to grow things. And there's some people who are built to, to protect things. And of course, these are learn- learnable uh, uh, 
a task, but you should, if, if you're a lawyer who's thinking to go into business, you want to at least be aware of that about how you've been trained so that you can work around it. Like you don't want to jettison the protective, like, gosh, I would hate to be, you know, running a big business without really good lawyers who can, you know, point out to you, Hey, you know what, if we do that, that's a, there's an issue here. Um, so by all means, it is essential to have excellence in the legal function, but the, but when you find a, a, a company that is driven by the lawyers acting as lawyers, that's a company that's going to have trouble, oftentimes have trouble really growing because they're they're so worried about doing something wrong that they don't take any risk. Right, right. Well, thank thank you uh, for that for the young lawyers out there. So we're we're almost at time here. Uh, I'd I'd like to pick your brain just a little bit on where Kaplan is going and how it will use its global standing and reputation as a force for growth and change in the education landscape. Well, gosh, uh, a lot there. Um, you know, years ago, you know, I, I wrote my my book. Um, uh, more, than, more than a decade ago, and I, I predicted at that time that the uh, the future of education would, was going to be more mobile, more personalized, more outcomes focused, more accessible, and more global. And I think that we, in fact, have seen a lot of that over the last ten years. And Kaplan has been built around around that, around those those assumptions about where the world is going. And I feel like, particularly coming out of the pandemic. The world is moving towards Kaplan, towards our approach, towards more practical education, uh, more outcomes-focused uh, education, affordable uh, education, and so, like, uh, and we've been we've been among the pioneers of that. I mean, uh, one of the little noted, uh, <laughs> you know, comments coming out of the um, pandemic was that when we and a small number of other uh, organizations, mostly companies, started pioneering online education back in the 1990s. We were under withering fire. I mean, everybody thought this is terrible. How could you deliver, you know, education via computer? This is terrible. Even um, Supreme Court justices uh, weighed in on this because we had an online law school back in the 1990s, right. and that was viewed as like a an outrage. Well. Over time, we, you know, we and others were hardly the only innovators here, but um, started building sophisticated models and technologies and processes and cultures to deliver high quality uh, education. And the rest of, of uh, American education and ultimately world education started the process of following it. And thank goodness all that happened, because if we hadn't been doing that, you know, for all those years, when the pandemic hit and all of a sudden everybody got shifted to online learning, there wouldn't be models and technologies and so on to, to draw upon. And you could, you could have had the complete collapse of the education system around the world. So um, I feel like Kaplan has long been driving the process of sort of the future of education, work readiness, which I know is, is something that you know, is is at the heart of what you do, something what you were working on in Kaplan, making sure that students what through in whatever program they're in, emerge better able to succeed in the workplace on day one. That that element of education is something that that we have helped pioneer and are continuing to help pioneer. And and we will continue to do those kinds of things over time. 
you know, and I, I, I think that's, you know, very, I, I am the most biased person probably could get on this topic, but Kaplan has been very important to the evolution of education uh, in, in America and around the world. So I could go in much more detail, but I think we're, we're, it sounds like we're coming towards the end here. Yeah, yeah, no, we, you, you and I could uh, have this talk for probably another two hours. Andy, thank you so much for being here. This was just a blast uh, to, to have you on the show. Uh, we'll, we'll have to do it again. Uh, my name is Andy Tempty. My guest is Andy Rosen. This is the Balancing Act podcast. Uh, please like, subscribe, rate, share, share with your friends, uh, and we will see you next time.